At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Build Business Acumen podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Schooler. So I'd like to introduce you to Martin Brooks. In a competitive world, communicating with maximum impact is a core competitive advantage. As an impactologist, Martin helps people make sure their impact is top-notch by analysing their body language, voice, language and structure and also ensures that they have the confidence and business-appropriate stories to land their messages. And this is a really interesting conversation. Well, it is great to speak with you, Martin. I'm really looking forward to today, actually, because I'm sort of taking a bit of a step into doing a bit of speaking in front of in front of people and all of these skills you know that we're going to discuss really will help with that and I think they also help with meetings they help with everything in business don't they really whether you have your own business or you work within a corporation right yeah sure I mean confidence is something that's often associated with standing up and doing a presentation but it can be equally relevant in a round table meeting committee meeting or something like that where you're just sitting there with your content in front of you and then suddenly the most senior person in the room turns looks straight at you and asks you a a really really important question and 19 people turn and look straight at you and in that moment confidence and the ability and faith in self and the ability to project yourself as well as possible can be every bit as important and relevant to your ongoing career as a, as a big presentation. So yeah, for me, it's a, it's, it's a constant. It's something that you need to be able to access all the time to be able to peak perform no matter what the pressure. Right. So, <coughs> excuse me. So confidence gives you influence and it gives you presence or what? I mean, how, where do you start? If you're, if you're, if you're sort of, let's just imagine that you, that you're not feeling confident. Mm. And you want to build influence and you want to build a presence, right? And whatever that presence is, where are you, where, you know, whatever it means to you as an individual, where would you, where would you start, you know, if you want to take your career to the next sort of level? Sure. Well, when I work with people who will often hire me to increase their, their presentation skills and, and very often what I find is the thing that's holding them back is a lack of confidence, and that can just be the, the natural thing that we all are aware of. We move into, that's just your brain's way of saying you're in a more risky situation than you were five minutes ago. So people can do a presentation in their office by themselves and feel totally calm. But then they walk into a room where there's 30 people and they're, they're experiencing an entirely different emotional state. Now the content's the same, the slides are the same, the computer they're using the same, they're the same person. But the environment has shifted their, their psychological state from one of being happy with their environment and their surroundings to now understanding there's a risk factor. There's a risk now to sticking your head above the parapet and talking out loud where people can actually hear you. So confidence then is the ability to still be able to deal with that risk but it not, and, and, and to feel a bit nervous. And I often confuse people when I say, well, nerves are actually a good thing. That's your brain's way of saying there's more at stake and you really need to, to up your game. But like, it, like a lot of good things, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. And if the stress hormones like cortisol, for example, just get too high, for, forget peak performance. People can't even remember key times or dates or whatever. So I've got a, what I call a three B's methodology that I work with people. And here's the three things that you can do, the three, three things that begin with B that can really help you boost your confidence so you can be the best version of you irrespective of the pressure and peak perform and get across what you want to say. Wow. 
Wow. I mean, I've been I've been sort of I've been studying a little bit around around this and I watched one of have you heard of a lady called I think it's Amy Cundy. A- Amy Cuddy, yeah, she did Cuddy, one of the most viewed TED talks ever on on uh, on this issue. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, her talk just blew my mind. Like it's so emotional, it's it's quite ridiculous. But she talks about you know how you actually you know basically put your feet on the desk, um, <laughs> lean back, you know, lean back in your chair for I don't I think it was two minutes, and that actually really affects the hormones in your in your brain. Yeah, um, to the point of you actually, well, they did experiments, didn't they? And 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 she proved that actually that made a big difference in interviews for people who were attempting to get a job. And the ones that actually sat there and looked down and felt very small and sat in the chair beforehand and looked at their mobile phones were the ones <laughs> that didn't get the job, right? Yeah. So the core concept behind that is that your brain decides which which chemicals go into your bloodstream. And the chemicals that are in your bloodstream then determine your emotional state. So if you're highly stressed, you get high levels of cortisol in your bloodstream. If you're feeling very confident, you've got lower levels of cortisol and high levels of testosterone. So your brain has a load of different uh, pointers, if you like, or or catalysts that, that create, well, what chemicals are going to go into the bloodstream? So that's why one of my three Bs of building confidence is your body. So the shell of your body, how you stand, how you move, the way you look at people, your shoulders rounded up, the back, do you look people in the eye? Do you smile? The, the way, even the way you walk, uh, if you're even, even just that influences your whole psychological state. And that's, really affects how other people respond to you. So Amy Cuddy was, was really interested in the, the idea of the guy who's a godfather of, of modern psychology, a guy called William James, back in the 1890s. He coined this phrase, fake it till you make it. The idea being, if you want people to think of you as a confident person, well then, we all know what confident looks and sounds like. You stand up tall, you throw your shoulders back, you look people in the eye, you give them a strong handshake, all that stuff all those behavioral indicators. And he said, well, look, if you want people to think of you as confident, behave in a confident way. People don't have access to your innermost thoughts or your, or your blood chemistry. All they've got to go on is your behavior. So if you present that behavior, then people will respond to that. Now, what's interesting about that dynamic is that it's when people respond to you as being confident, they're, they're their conclusion is that you are a confident person. They start giving you the behavior that one gets when one feels confident. Then you actually start to genuinely feel confident. Hence the phrase, fake it till you make it. So right. if you were building on his research and going, look, it's a lovely theory, but can we, can we scientifically measure it? Hence the experiments you were talking about where they got people to adopt what are called power poses and did a before and after saliva test on the levels of cortisol and uh, testosterone or their bloodstreams contrasted those with low power poses but more interestingly then what they did was they took both those control groups and put them into interviews high stress interviews and then asked people to interview them without knowing which test group they were interviewing and which they would actually hire and not surprisingly that the the interviewers and if the apprentice style tough interviewing all predominantly, you know, that said, well, hire the hire him, hire her, those people who've been through the high power poses. So they were able to scientifically measure not only the changes in blood chemistry, but also the changes in behavior and how other people were were perceiving them. So yeah, that's why Amy Cuddy's talk is one of the most viewed talks on TED. Yeah. It's emotional. Yeah, I cried. When I, when I watch it, I cried the first time. <laughs> I might have even cried the, the, for a few more, to be honest, because it's that moment where she actually talks about how, how she faked it until she made it. Then, and then she told her student to do yeah. the same thing. And she said, I don't, you know, you need to go out. I mean, anyone listening to this, you've got to go out there and, and search on Google for Amy Cuddy. And, and literally listen to that, watch the longest talk that there is. It's like 22 minutes. And, yeah. you, you know, I recommend it highly. If you want to build a presence for yourself in front of people and you want to build influence, because I think influence really comes from confidence and it comes from having, a, you, I mean, you have confidence first, right? Then you have a presence and that builds influence, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I think the confidence enables the behaviors that people would judge as presence. I think presence and confidence and everything else are really the only measurement really worthwhile is what other people then pick up on and respond to. I mean, there's no point in having a, a point of reference of, I feel confident, but if I asked 100 people, none of them say, well, you don't look confident, you don't sound confident. The real measurement is that external one. I kind of go with the, with the Jeff Bezos idea that, you know, your, your personal brand or how people measure you is, is determined by what they say about you when you've left the room. So after you've done the pitch, after you've done the presentation, after you've contributed to the meeting, the challenge I always give to people is if you've got a big meeting or a presentation or a pitch coming up and you do it and then you leave the room and I walk in and I ask the person or, or persons that you're pitching to to describe you in three words, what would be the three words that you'd like them to say? And, and that's always an interesting exercise to start with. And I said, now, if that's how you want them to represent, then you've got to track back. You've now got to reverse engineer your behavior, your interactions, your confidence levels, how you put things across to all lead to that conclusion. It's not going to happen by accident. And then I can look at how they're currently communicating and I go, well, I know what three words I'd use to describe that. And they're not the three words that... <laughs> be represented as and it's my job to close the gap it's like okay so in terms of uh, your confidence levels or your body language or your voice or how you speak or the words that you use or the rhetorical techniques that you put into what it is that that you're saying i look at all of the elements of that and dissect them and okay okay so three things i always promise clients i'll tell you things to do that will reduce the the negative perception of other people so behaviors that are reducing your impact so let's say for example somebody saying um or uh all the time yeah, yeah. Uh, the second thing is i always tell you what to do instead so okay. if you say um, uh, i'll give you tools or techniques for how not to do that and how to pause effectively uh, so i'll tell you what to, what not to do what to do instead and then the third thing is then i've studied all the top influencers and communicators of the world and i'll say well here's what the tony blurs or the barack obamas or the ronald reagans of the world do here are the the key impact techniques that they that they then use to be perceived the way that they've been they've been perceived but yeah i think coming back to the original point i think the the confidence is an enabler for people to behave in a certain way that can be measured by other people which which then people call oh, yeah that uh, oh, that guy Nate, yeah he's got he's got great presence yeah. And then that actually turns into influence because yeah. in the end of the day, you know, you're, you're there to influence something like you might be, you know, all of these skills that we're talking about are, I mean, even if you don't have a girlfriend and you want to go and get a girlfriend, you need, you, or, or, or a boyfriend. I mean, like you need to have confidence. <laughs> you need, you need to have presence and you need to be able to influence what they think about you. I mean, you know, if you, if you, for instance, meet a girl and, and, and you talk to her and she, and you sort of look down at the floor and you don't look at her in the eyes, then she's not going to remember you. She's not going to want you to, to, to speak to you again, is she? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's all, it's all about that impression that, that you make and that, that, that presence that you have, then when people go, yeah, you, you have presence, you've come across as an expert then you get to that golden point where they say, okay, so tell me more or tell me what you think. You become somebody that they will want to listen to because let's, let's face it, whether it's podcasts or, or, or salespeople or experts, there's plenty of them out there, but which are the ones that capture our attention? And I think it's confidence is an entry point. Yes, for sure. But it's not enough. Like, like being a good athlete gets you to the being a brilliant athlete gets you to the Olympics, but only one person is going to get a gold medal. So then it's about how can you leverage all of these tools and techniques to put yourself in gold medal position in, in business, whether that's as an individual pitching for a job, internally pitching for resources, or going out to potential clients and pitching your company's offering and saying, this is what we've got. So confidence gets you in the game, but it's how well you leverage all the tools and techniques to be able to re really get that gold medal position and be able to, to win because you become a person of influence. You become somebody that uh, uh, clients and audiences and shareholders and stakeholders want to listen to. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting, actually. And I think certainly being able to stop people saying and and but 
I wish, I wish someone would teach my guests how to do that and teach me as well. I mean, I, I, I say, um, quite a bit actually. And, you know, I edit, I edit my expert talks and I take out ums and ahs and whatever, but it's, it's a lot to do with the brain, isn't it? And how, and how the brain is kind of thinking two or three steps ahead of what you're saying. So really just, I think calming down is my own personal, personal uh, attitude around that, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting one because those, they're, they're called in the industry filler sounds. So they, they fill a gap. And you've, you've actually hit it on the head there where when we're nervous, the heart tends to beat faster. And when the heart tends to beat faster, the mouth starts to keep pace with that. So we end up speaking 10, 15, sometimes even 20% faster than we're used to in normal conversation. So then you're in this high stress situation, you're communicating really fast and you get to the end of a sentence and because you're speaking faster than you normally are, your brain's playing catch up. It's about 10, 15, 20% behind and doesn't really know exactly quite yet what, it, what the next sentence is. So there's a gap then between that sentence and the next sentence while the brain catches up. And of course, people are nervous that that gap might be interpreted as they're not, they're, they're finished or they might get interrupted or it's time for a question. They go, no, 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 I'm not finished. I just don't know what I want to say yet. So somehow I've got to communicate that I'm not yet finished, but I don't know actually what I want to say. So I fill the gap with an uh or an um, or sometimes people actually have a filler word. They go like, so... <laughs> and that's just their way of buying those extra couple of nanoseconds oh. to make their next stop before they speak again. Yeah, yeah, but not not only that. There's the word ultimately. That yeah. just makes me laugh. Like well, obviously, is one of my favorites. People go, well, obviously, and they go, well, no, up, why am I paying you? Both of those words just crack me up. Yeah, like <laughs> what? But you get the word ultimately a lot in advertising. Like marketing right. and advertising people use it because it makes them feel smarter. They, they it's somehow <laughs> like this kind of one-upmanship, like this kind of I don't know what you would call it. It's almost like being a social vampire. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, Martin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny, really. It's quite funny. But I think what what really what what I learned from someone a few years ago that I had no idea of actually was when 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 i was I, I did like a best man speech at my, one of my best friend's weddings and yeah. i actually changed my speech right near to the point of when i was going to give it and i didn't actually put a note of what the i think it was the bride's mother's name was that was it and mm. i forgot the bride's mother's name yeah and i'll never forget that moment of sort of standing there and actually asking someone what her name was mm. and and to me, that time felt like forever. But actually, in the, in the real world, it was a very short amount of time. And, and that's something that, you know, I really, I really think people need to remember that when you pause, it generally is just something that you are thinking, oh, no, this feels like an eternity. But that three or four seconds, it may seem really quite good to the audience because they might be actually digesting what you've just been saying right absolutely yeah i mean when if you if you look at a, a newspaper or, or a book you've got you know lots of white space you've got uh, sentences broken up into paragraphs or chapters and i always say when when i'm when i'm working with clients and they're preparing a pitch i say your pauses are your vocal white space they're just those, those moments that breaks up the content into manageable chunks and allows people a little bit of time to digest what you've actually just said. And people can be overly afraid of those little pauses. But I always said, look, think of them as vocal white space. You need, people need a little bit of white space to catch up with what you've just said, what that means to them and where this, this conversation is taking them. So embrace those pauses, have them in the appropriate places and it gives that punctuation, if you like, to what you're actually saying. And really confident people are quite happy to pause. You know, and it's nervous. It's associated with like people who are nervous or, or unsure or unprepared who would then try to rattle through everything as quickly as they possibly can. That's very, that's very, very helpful, actually. Is actually a filler word? Probably. 
it can be. It can be. It depends upon you. Well, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> you could judge it that way. <laughs> it's too much. It is too much. But I think, I mean, I, when I when I first started doing the audios, I literally would would just sort of edit out all of the kind of really long pauses. But but yeah. I listened to I listened to an episode. I was editing it the other day and I just released it today actually and it's with it's with a, a friend of mine who's a barrister and mm. it's very very interesting when you when you listen to someone I mean like you use the 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 Obama and and you know some other examples earlier but when you sort of listen to someone that's actually been in front of a judge and stood up and paused to create a drama or, or, or to get someone to actually think about something in more detail. Cause that's what, that's what they are doing in essence, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So yeah. So you'd have the lawyer who would go, well, the, the burning question, your honor is how do we see this going? You know? And it's just that little dramatic pause that, that, that pulls people in and certainly probably be more applicable for, for most of the people listening to this podcast would be how do you use a pause to really draw people in? And one way of doing that is a technique known as the rhetorical question. So for example, if you've got a slide that's got, here's the problem, or this is the situation that we need to change or the current set of circumstances, then on the next slide has got solutions. Now you want to do what we call bridge so you move from one slide to another, but that there's a connection. Too many presentations we see, I think you probably have as well, been like a, a series of unrelated uh, pictures or images. And the, the ability to bridge between them is one good thing to do that, to do that, to keep that red line going through. And a rhetorical question can be one way of doing that. And the little pause in the middle there uh, creates an engagement piece because we know it's a question and the pause causes that moment of confusion as in, oh, God, goodness, is that an actual question? So it draws people in. They start thinking about the answer and then you give it. So, for example, if I was coming to the end of a, of a, of a PowerPoint slide that here's the current problem, I might say something like, so that gives us a real in-depth problem of how much of, a, uh, of an issue this is right now and where it's going to potentially go even worse wrong in the future. So what are we going to do about it? Right. So you do, you, it's a bit like, it's a bit like how the sort of, you sort of, I see what you did. I hear what you did there. You kind of went through, because I know Douglas was telling me, because he, he actually studied a lot of speeches because he used to write speeches for, I think it was the, the prime minister of Malaysia or something. And mm -hmm. so he studied a lot of speeches from like Martin Luther King and Kennedy's speech and, and, and people like mm. that. And, and they speak in threes, don't they? So you did that. You, yeah. and you've, you've obviously internalized the way that you speak to, to create impact. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah. Uh, I remember coming across the idea. Well, these, 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 all come, these rhetorical techniques all come from the time of Aristotle and the, and the book that he wrote, The Art of Rhetoric. And it was the study of what was called high speech of the day. And, and as you rightly said, lawyers were, were the, you know, held up as the epitome of, of how to speak particularly well at that point right. in time. And there is the, the rule of three, or what the Romans called the tricolon, or did we just call everyday names to triple, just saying things in threes, as I just did there. So structuring things in three. So it might be three description words, three examples, or three case studies, whereby you present information to back up your argument in some way, shape, or form. But as I just did again, I said I did it in threes. That there's that magic number of of three. So four too many, two not enough, three seems to be the magic number. And interestingly, when I sat down for hours at a time and analyzed Barack Obama's inauguration speech, uh, a speech of 2,509 words, just under 19 minutes, but he had 17 uh, triples in that particular speech, almost like one a minute. So it's a key technique of, of influence that you can just weave into what you're actually saying. People have no awareness of it, but it just what you're saying just sounds just that little bit more compelling because you're using that structure of saying thing in three. Wonderful. So all of these, all of these things are tied in together then really. And, yeah. and 
I mean, we've got another couple of topics. I mean, I know we've covered some of communication skills already, but I think what, where do you start then with communication skills? Uh, communication skills for me is all about in your head, there's an idea, there's a thought, there's a proposal that you have, something that you want to get across. And it makes sense to you. Communication for me is the art of that idea as undiluted, as unmisinterpreted and as accurate as possibly ends up in another person or other person's heads in exactly the same format. And communication is the art of being able to achieve that. And that sounds very easy in, it, in its starting point, but it's actually incredibly complex in terms of being able to put that across. So it's all about what it is that you want to say, articulating that in a way that can be understood in the way that you'd meant it to be understood. And if you connect with that audience, be it one person, be it a, a committee, or, or in fact, be it a, or, uh, hundreds of people during a keynote, they get it and they buy into it and they want to know what to do next. And that's the, 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 the art of communication has been able to achieve that where you had an intention, you turned it into communication, people interpreted it correctly and then took the actions that you, that you wanted them to take. And that's the art of communication. Right. So would you, would you think that actually starting with thinking, first of all, I mean, my, my dad suggested quite a, quite a good technique. What he does is he, 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 he said, right, you take a piece of paper and on the left you write, what do they want? And then on the right you write, what do I want them to take away? Yeah. So that, that potentially, do you think, is a good place to start when, you're, when you've got a specific thing that you want to explain or would you start yeah. somewhere else? Yeah, well, there's one of the things I, I talk about with a lot of my clients, particularly when I'm talking to people who are, are very enthusiastic about their product and their offering and why it's brilliant. And they talk to other people on the assumption that they are equally interested. <laughs> it so sounds call, like me back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I call this the assumption of interest. Right. That you know, the people start going, oh, we've got this amazing product and it's brilliant and it does this. And look at all, it's got all these incredible features and oh, Peyton did this and we've got this unique algorithm that does this. And I just say, stop, please stop talking. Please, please stop talking because you haven't considered your audience in any way, shape or form. So the, the three words that I always start with are know your audience. Right. Who are they? What do they want? Why would they even begin to be interested in what it is that you have to say? And how is it that your, 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 your product, your offering, your company has any relevance to their current state of play? What problem do they have that what you're talking about solves? Or how, is, how, how do you make their life easier? How do you make them money? How do you save them money? How do you make them time? Or if you bring the human ego into play, how do you make them look good? And that needs to be the starting point of what it is that you're going to say. They, they don't want a, a complete run through of your product and your, your offering. They just don't care what they do care about. Human beings are inherently selfish. They want to go, well, what's in it for me? Yeah. How does this help me? Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's really just becoming aware, first of all, of, of what they actually want. I mean, some people may, may just want to go home, like they may not even want to be there. And that's, that's, mm. you know, that's, that's got to be quite difficult, really, to communicate something to people that really don't want to be there. So then I suppose it's, it's getting them to buy in to themselves and their problems, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, the interesting scenario is where you have to sell a solution to a problem that people don't realize that they have. <laughs> so you could be talking about the solution and they go, well, I, I don't need this because there's a lack of awareness of the problem they actually, they actually have. Right. So the starting point may well be, look, here's, here's the problem. I, I worked with a senior executive a couple of months ago and, I, and he was kind of interested in what I did. I said, look, you know, okay, here, here, here's a, a talk that I did. He, he directed me towards one on, on YouTube that he put out there. And he said, yeah, that's pretty good. And 
let me know what you think. So I said, okay, well, you know, the first minute there's a problem. So well, what? And I said, well, he said, um, 11 times in the first minute. And he went, did I? And he, <laughs> I, I, and he had to go off and he had to watch him because, oh my goodness, I did. <laughs> so so there, the, this is, this is the, 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 often a part of the design of communication is, are actually people aware of the problem that they have that you're presenting a solution to? Because if they, if they, they don't have that awareness of the problem and why it's a problem, that's the other thing, that well, I don't need a solution. I don't need your product, your offering, your service. So all of these elements come into the design of what it is that you're going to say. You can't have the assumption of interest. You can't have the assumption of knowledge that people are, know what it is to say. And you can't have the, the assumption that they want to listen to you as an individual. So you've got to be an, an engaging individual to buy. So the idea that I said earlier, that in order to buy from you, you'd have to buy into you. So you have to put all of these elements into the pot. And then depending upon the length of time you've got on stage, be it three minutes, be it 30 minutes, be it a kind of more standard TED Talk, 20 minutes, you've got to decide how do you, what do you put in there when you look at all of these, all of these elements, and very often your product, your service, your offering is is one of the, the lesser important elements. It's it's like the, the the last bit that goes in. That's very very interesting, very interesting. So, where would you begin then? Like, I mean, if someone sort of stood up and they did a presentation, would you? would you get them to tell a story then of, of, of sort of what their product or service has done for someone else? Is that a fair place to, to, to suggest they start? Well, it's, it's, well, there's two things in there. One is storytelling as a communication technique. Mm-hmm. And storytelling, uh, all the research is out there. It, it's, it's well known. It's one of the things that we as human beings just respond to. It's innate in our psychology and even our physiology. Uh, storytelling. I saw a statistic somewhere we, a while ago where the, somebody had said that if you go into any social environment, 75% and upwards of what people are actually doing is telling stories. So it might have been, oh, a funny thing happened last night or, or this or that or a movie they're talking about. So it's definitely something that's innate in uh, as a as a communication tool. The second thing, so it really really works as a communication tool. The second thing then is case studies, you know, because we can all go, oh, my, what my product, my service, my company does were were brilliant. And we go, well, yeah, that's that's theory, but what about the practice? So our case studies are always much more convincing than just people saying, my product, my service, my offering is fantastic, and here's why I think that. But a case study whereby you can clearly identify here was, and you can then turn that into a story, of course, here was the problem this client had. These were the implications of that problem being unsolved. We came in and we created this intervention. These fantastic things started to happen and they realized that it was the best investment that they ever made. So there's a, there's a, there's a natural flow to that particular story, but case studies are really, really important. Storytelling is a brilliant communication tool, but uh, it takes particular skills to do, to do tell stories in business. It's not a conversation down the pub with your mates. There's a particular art, which is why I have a, uh, a module on storytelling on business and, to, and look at the key structures of how to be able to dip in and out of stories in a business context and that really add to your, your presence, your communication, gravitas, and of course, ultimately towards your success. That's very interesting. I was, I was actually thinking about storytelling a few, a few days ago, you know, and, and I was sort of, I can't remember where I picked up this piece of information though. It's, it's, so imagine I'm sort of having a conversation with you and I'm, and I'm, and I'm sort of feeling a bit lacking in confidence. Well, Mm. I could actually just change the subject to, to regain my confidence and then come back and revisit what I was actually trying to tell you. If I kind of felt a rebuttal, if you like, <laughs> what, what do you think about that as a, as a technique? So do you see what, do you understand what I mean? I think in conversations we can, we can often have little wobbles 
and were and that could be topic orientated or or can just be you know, your your example earlier giving a speech and just forgetting somebody's yeah. name we've all had that in the in the industry called that brain blank it's just for some strange reason a statistic a name a project name a piece of research a company name just drops out of our head for a second and that happens and i just take a big deep breath and go well it's the company name middle age brain i'll come back in a second <laughs> and continue on and then invariably you know 10 15 30 30 seconds later it'll come back once i take the pressure off of trying to remember i just go to my i just say literally to myself yeah it'll come back in a minute it's, it's there and then I'll continue on with the camera. Oh, yeah, of course, it was uh, American Express or it was the NHS that I was working with at that point in time. Whatever it was, that piece of data, that statistic will, will invariably come back. And I find that the more pressure you put yourself on to in those kind of situations, the, you, there's a negative compound effect. Right. Whereas you take the pressure off, go, yeah, you know, it'll, it'll come to me in a second. Just can't quite remember it right now. And you move on. Then just pops back into your head and it can weave it back into the conversation. So that in itself is taking away that performance pressure of having in a very short window of time to, to be able to perform, whether that's data recollection or piece of mental arithmetic or a person's name, whatever it is, just take the pressure off and it'll come back. And that keeps you in a confident state of mind because you're taking away that performance anxiety. So that, that, that certainly can be one way of moving a conversation on, acknowledging where we are. I think the danger is that uh, people might go, hang on a second, there's something you're uncomfortable with and you're just sweeping under the carpet, you don't want to talk about it. Uh, so there's always the... The, the risk factor of everything that you do is interpreted. So be in control of your behavior and be in the world, the implications of any tool or technique that you use. And then sometimes you just can't prevent them. Then you're into management of that. So it's, it's being aware of what it is you're, you're, you're doing at all points in time. How does that create the impact? And is that moving you closer to or further away from the ultimate goal from the conversation? And being able to tweak and adjust as accordingly as you go. Right. That's very interesting. I mean, I was, I was sort of delving into the history of email the other day because I'm, mm. I'm kind of trying to learn more about written uh, communication. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that we as a species, from the research that, that's, been, that's been done, we as a species are not used to having conversations without speaking. We make massive, massive misinterpretations from email, text, social media, all sorts of things that are communicated completely wrong in those mm. cases. Communication skills like verb, I mean, we're in essence talking about verbal communication, aren't we? And combining that obviously with, with, with body language, right? I mean, it's, the body language is, a, is an interesting one because if you sort of, if you overdo it, you can, you, can, you can kind of go in there with too much confidence. Would you agree on that or not? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's always a bit of, of humility uh, that's, that really does build the rapport and the relationship because you don't want to have a separation from the audience, if you like. And, and somebody said to me one point in time, you know, if I, doing a presentations course and they're going, and I was, and I was working out all the little foibles, all the little bits that would take away from, from their overall impact. And they said, you know, oh, if I iron all these out and I'm too perfect, you know, will that make me less approachable? And I said, gosh, I, I wish I have that problem. You know, at some point in time, I used people say, you know, you're just, you're just too good. But I think there's a, there is, there's definitely a line between confidence and arrogance. Right. And that, that's, that, that's one that's really, really interesting to, to tread because, you know, again, as I said before, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. And being, being humble and being real, and I think that goes a long way to, to, to building your relationship and being confident. And I've certainly got this as I've got older. Being confident and saying, I don't know the answer to that question. That's, that's not my area. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Uh, and that and that's fine. And I think that builds a lot of a lot of trust as well, rather than trying to take a tiny little bit of knowledge that you have and pretend you're an expert with yeah. it. We're just saying I don't know. I, I I heard somebody in a conversation really where they got asked a question, and they said, 
I I don't really know enough to have an uh, a, a opinion that's worthwhile on that particular topic. And the other person went, well, you have to have an opinion. And they went, well, no, I don't, because I just don't know enough about it to have an opinion that I'd happily stand behind. So I, I don't have an opinion. And the, and the other person was a little bit challenged by that point of view. But I think that's absolutely right. If you if you don't know, please don't pretend yeah. that you know. And I think people res- respond to that. Of course, if that's your supposed area of expertise and you go, I don't know, that's a completely different ball game altogether. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's actually a lot of that within the technology space. There are a lot of people who are fake influencers who, yeah. who perhaps, you know, are just social media kind of handles really. And, and they've built up a certain amount of influence from social media and actually they can't have a sensible conversation about a lot of these topics. And, you know, I'm very mm. clear if I don't know something, I would rather tell someone because I think it's a waste of someone's time. Like why would you want to waste someone's time by giving an opinion on something when you know zero about it. I mean, I think yeah. you, you, you may be able to have a conversation, but it's kind of just a bit pointless, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? It's a bit of a waste of time. So- yeah. I mean, there's, the, the, it's interesting you're talking about technology and email and everything else, and, and technology has created platforms where people can really look like experts yes. um, and you know, you know thousands of followers and they they publish something and there's it's tweeted or retweeted or liked or commented on you think goodness wow this person really does know what they're talking about and it's interesting then when you use false metrics you get a false result and really for me the only result is walking the talk mm. let let's see let's see you let's see you do your thing and that's actually on on my twitter handle that's my pin tweet because I, I did an interview on the BBC, BBC Two, during the Welsh Assembly elections in 2016. And the interviewer came before the actual programme and said, so they had the leadership debate, which was an hour, and then it was a half-hour analysis programme. And she came to me, and I was one of the people, who's got, one of the quote-unquote experts who's going to be asked what they thought. And the interviewer came to me before the debate started and said, okay, there's, there's a 30-minute programme, there's 120 people in the room, there are 20 people who are guaranteed a question. You are one of them. Whether you get a second question or not will depend upon the quality of your first answer. So no pressure. <laughs> so it's live TV. And of course, because the debate hasn't happened yet, she said, well, I can't tell you what I'm going to ask you. I, don't, I can't tell you what my first question is going to be because the program hasn't, gonna, hasn't happened and we're going to cut straight to the, to the question. And I talk about impact techniques all the time, but how do I actually do it? Uh, so I actually go to that. I go, experts won't talk about what they do. They'll do what they do. So in my first answer, I wove in three impact techniques. I wove in the triple that we talked about earlier. I wove in a contrast uh, technique, and I wove in the technique called a killer stat. So I wove in three of the techniques that I, that I teach into my first answer on live TV. And that, to me, really is the only metric that matters. Can you walk your talk? Can you do what it is that you say? And, and of course, consequently, I did get a second question, a third question, and a fourth. Right. So uh, comp- contrasted with about a year and a half ago, I went to see an influencer. And I bought tickets. I went to see them on, on stage. And I'll be very careful about what I say here about the content. I'll have to keep it pretty vague. But they presented themselves as an expert, thousands of followers, and did a talk on a topic whilst failing to demonstrate any of the skills that they were actually uh, talking about. They just had 50 bullet points, uh, 10 slides, five bullet points, talking about how to do something without actually demonstrating any of them. And it's the only presentation or talk I've actually walked out of, because I thought, if I don't walk out soon, I'm going to say something publicly. Yeah, yeah. So the, the real the real metric is you know, can you walk your talk for for me and that's really important in this technological age where people can hide behind. Oh, completely, completely. But in terms of the body language, right? Yeah, it's a difficult call, isn't it? Because you, like you were saying, confidence and arrogance are quite mm. close, and I mean, it's almost it's almost like. It's kind of just being at home with yourself and not and not actually trying to cover anything up because a lot of the time if people don't really know their subject and yeah. and or perhaps they feel challenged 
yeah i mean this could be within a corporate situation it could be body language when you walk into the office might rub someone up the wrong way because you're too i don't know too um straight you're too positive <laughs> you're you smile too much or you know <laughs> well it could be i mean you might be just grinning because you just had a brilliant workout or something but mm. I mean, Amy, C- Amy Cuddy and, and that talk that she does really sums it up quite nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, body language is, is one of those things that's important. And I want to come back to something you said uh, earlier there about knowing what it is that you know or don't know and, and maybe try and cover it up. And there's a principle in, in body language experts by a guy called Paul Ekman who studied body language and what we call deception, detection. And the idea of emotional leakage, that if you are unsure about what you're saying, that in some way, shape or form, that's going to leak out in your behavior. So if you don't agree with something and you should be nodding your head, yes, you know, very often people will nod their head, no. So their body will, will speak the truth whilst their mouth says something that's completely untrue. Fascinating topic. I really enjoyed studying Paul Ekman's work on this but that people are on a, on a uh, people like myself who've studied it will be aware on a conscious level, we'll notice stuff, which is why I always enjoy watching politicians when they're saying things and going, hmm, <laughs> wow. I don't think I believe, you know, I, can, I can point at specific behaviors, things that they've done or said. And this is why the, 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 and that principle of emotional leakage, the body speaks the mind. And that may be the body or it could be the voice as well. So people can move from very certain words like our goal, our aim is to, we are confident to. Then all of a sudden they start talking about another topic and their words change and their pitch of their voice changes. So then changes to, well, hopefully, and we we should. And I I think, so you get that pitch change, it comes up an octave or two, and then the words change. So it's gone from goal and aim and strategy to think and hopefully and should. And that just gives people the heebie-jeebies. They start to back away. Do we really believe this person? Is this person being believable? Therefore, do we believe what they're actually saying? And the, the, for me, the big crime is, is not so much lying, getting found out. That's kind of your own fault. But for me, the big crime is where people do actually know their stuff because they haven't been able to boost their confidence. Then they're communicating in a way that's less confident but they actually are telling the truth. And then, of course, people can only go on the behavior that they're given, and they may judge somebody as not being as much of an expert as they are or being a little bit liberal with, with, the, with the truth or, dare I even say it, presenting alternative facts, that uh, they, 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 they then get judged in, in the wrong way. They actually are really good, confident people, but their nerves have got the better of them, and then those nerves have been interpreted as... as as not them not representing their their thoughts, their ideas, or their products as accurately as perhaps they should. So body language and how we're perceived by other people, particularly in relation to to truth or accuracy, is something that is very very important. Because whether you're doing it like me consciously or everybody, we all have this. I mean, we get that little feeling in the back of our heads when somebody's talking to us. We don't believe them. We're not sure. We get that uneasy feeling. The only difference between uh, people and generally and people like me as so I'll, I'll then be able to analyze that and go well they did that they said that this changed therefore that's what drove the uneasy feeling and that's really useful when i'm working with clients because they don't want to be given out behavior that could give the wrong impression of them being nervous or unsure or just blatantly lying and it's that analysis that's really really important but you're right that it, the body language what we say how we say it the words we choose in terms of how we put something together all of that contributes to how we're perceived and what's interpreted and the meaning that people take. And ultimately, it all comes down to whether they're going to act on, they're going to behave in the way that you, that you want. So it's important to look at all of the aspects of that and how, how you communicate. And body language and confidence and your communication skills are all key contributors to, to that end result. That's, that's very, very true. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. But do you think that it, it can be a kind of subconscious destruction? Um, I mean, that's in essence what you're sort of talking around. It's like, a, it's like your subconscious mind or your habits are making you less confident, 
or appear less confident because mm. because you may perhaps be suffering from imposter syndrome or or shyness or assertiveness is lacking in your yeah. abilities right yeah yeah absolutely and the, the phrase i always share with clients is perception is reality how you're perceived by others is their reality and if that their reality is far away from the actual reality then the gap in the middle is your behaviors so what do we need to change in order for you to be perceived accurately and that that for me is the worst worst reason for people to fail that's why i love working with people whose confidence isn't so great or they're not used to a public speaking because there's the there's the style over substance and the worst thing for me i hate seeing is where people who've got lower knowledge lower expertise but great communication skills succeeding against people who've got much higher levels of expertise much higher levels of knowledge but poor communication skills and they lose out and that that just that just to me is a is a wrong in the world that i like to write and make sure that people who do know what they're talking about can represent themselves as well as they possibly can otherwise what happens is their nerves or their lack of confidence or their their lack of ability to move into that environment comfortably does end up as you say, unconsciously sabotaging what could otherwise be a fantastic result, and that's the and that's the that's the worst reason to fail. Not because you don't know your stuff, but just because people don't know you know your stuff because of how you've communicated. It. Right, but I think the more the more time you spend in an industry, the more you know your stuff. So the more at home you are with who you mm. are, really. I mean, I think that's yeah, you know, no. that's something that I sort of learned. I mean, I probably probably only been in marketing, not sales, marketing as a, as a sort of part of marketing and sales. I mean, they're quite closely linked, aren't they? Two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but I think in terms of actually being more seen as a, as a marketing guy, I'm not really a marketing guy. I'm a conversationalist. But, yeah. <laughs> but I think now I know a lot more about marketing. I understand... I understand it a lot more so I can have a conversation with someone who's who's been in marketing for 20 30 years and not feel like an idiot because I've been sort yeah. of around the right people and I think I think moving moving into different roles is very very difficult for people and, and changing careers is also very difficult and I what I quite like is when people I, I've seen a few people on LinkedIn and they actually post something like I'm a so you know there's this like big thing of chatbots like of of you mm. know like technology which means you can have a conversation with a robot on a website and and it'll educate you to buy something well i did notice a girl on my linkedin and she's actually she's actually got something in her in her headline that says i mean she said to start with this is about 2 years ago she said chatbot enthusiast right and i really mm. like the fact that she actually said that she was an enthusiast. She wasn't saying she's an expert. She wasn't saying that she was amazing. She was just saying, this is, you know, this is where I'm at and I'm learning about it. And I really like the fact that that's, that's what people can do. You know, I love that, that it's like, I'm interested in this topic. So, you know, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pretend that I am a hypnotist, for example, yeah? I've got an interest mm. in hypnosis. It doesn't make me a hypnotist. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, and it, you know, it's the same with, with, with all of these business topics. I've got a big interest in business, but I'm not going to claim to be a business expert. Yeah. Mm. I, I think that a lot of confidence comes from accurately representing what you know. But that also then, if you want, if, if we know there's a link between knowledge and confidence, then just ruthlessly dedicating yourself to building knowledge in the area that you, that you work in. And certainly I know for, for, from, from my case, it's just that ruthless pursuit of, uh, it comes from when I, when I studied psychology many, many years ago, one of the lecturers just saying, this is just one line, it just, it just leapt out at me. What's the difference that makes the difference? What's the difference that makes the difference? So there's a, if, there's, if there's three people you know, going for a job or pitching to a major client and they're all really good, yeah. what's the difference that makes the difference? Why do they pick uh, uh, that, that person for the role or, or that company to represent them? There must be something that they did 
differently. So building up your knowledge of your subject expert, what you're going to be a subject expert on, building up that expertise. There's no shortcut uh, to that. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks famously about the 10,000 hour rule that, you know, anybody who's good at anything is just going to dedicate 10,000 hours of practice to get to that point. In fact, I I responded to a tweet the other day to a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jeremy, where he, I said, uh, he was talking about, you know, find your, find your thing that you're good at, put your 10,000 hours in and, and off you go. And I, and I responded and I said, yeah, well, what happens if everybody else has also done their 10,000 hours? <laughs> You've got to do 10,001 or 10,002 or 10,003. And, and you, you can't rest on your, 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 your laurels. And I think that there is that link between confidence and knowledge and there's a there's a confidence in knowing what you don't know as well and just having that that first that thirst for knowledge and i i've certainly find that the more i know the less i realize that i that i do know so i hope by the time i die i've, I've fully realized how truly ignorant i am by the amount of information i've amassed which tells me about all the things that i don't know yeah. <laughs> i i agree 100 percent. so with body language in terms of just to just to wrap up because 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 I know we've kind of overrun a little bit, but with body language, when you when you actually walk into a room, that's the first time when you when you give an impression of who you are yeah. and 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 how confident or arrogant you come across. So, have you got any sort of tips for people who 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 are trying to get their body language right but don't want to? shrink into a into an introverted pose mm. and they don't want to be too big in a in a in a kind of arrogant pose yeah yeah it's it's an interesting one and if we come back to like you know the stuff we were talking about with with amy cuddy and posture is, is a major one and I, I always remember the the advice that my that my dad gave me i was a bit of a gangly teenager you know much taller and skinnier than a lot of my other peer groups. And I would kind of hunch my shoulders. I didn't want to be the, the, the freakishly tall one. And they always said, no, 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 no. Always stand up straight, shoulders back. You know, it's important, you know, to, to have a good posture because that's something that the people do respond to. And, uh, and in later years, I uh, did a lot of backpacking around, around the world. And this, the piece of advice that I got from somebody said, you know, when you're walking around, even if you have no idea where you're going, always stride purposefully like you know exactly where you're going because if somebody's looking to mug somebody they're they're gonna they're gonna look to mug the person that's a bit nervous a bit distracted the person who who seems unsure of themselves the person who's striding purposely you know with that sense of confidence about what they're doing they're they're gonna they're gonna leave that them alone and in the business environment you don't want your reputation mugged straight away by the way that you walk into a room where there's that kind of shy unapologetic you know short steps looking at the ground shoulders rounded so it's always a so amy cuddy's advice is you know go into a toilet cubicle stand with your hands on your hips big expansive gestures you know get yourself to to feel good and then obviously you're not going to walk into the room in what they call Henry the Eighth pose with your legs wide apart and your hands and your hips. You're going to look like an idiot. <laughs> so it's, about, it's about being able to use your body language to get into a particular psychological state and then power it back a bit so you don't come across as, as, as arrogant. And so you're standing tall with your shoulders back, but not pushed right back that you look like you're in a military parade. And just finding the balance that that strikes the, 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 the pose you can be comfortable in. And coming back to my point earlier about perception, being perceived as somebody who's comfortable in their own skin, comfortable in the room that, that they're in, and comfortable with what it is that they're about to do. And that makes people relax. Because when we see people who are nervous, it kind of makes us nervous. Mm. And, and, and we, we feel bad for the person for a while. And then, and then that wears off and we go, oh, you've made me feel bad. I don't, I don't want to feel bad. Stop making me feel bad. So there's a little bit of empathy to start with, but then it can very often start to go the other way. So much better not to put your audience in that position and just be comfortable in your own skin. Be aware of the impact of your own body language. Manage it appropriately. You know, if you need to go and stand in the power pose in the toilet for, for two minutes before you walk into a room, fine, go do that. So you can then enter the room in a way that gives you the best possible first impression. And we know how important first impressions are, and they're primarily visual. We are, you know, human beings, vision is our, 
is our primary sense. So looking good, feeling good in, in, in yourself and your posture. Uh, do, uh, other tips are just feeling really comfortable in what you're wearing. You know, you know, if, if, if the big thing, you know, put your best suit, your best dress on, your smartest shoes, the ones that you make always feel good. I remember as a young boy watching James Bond getting dressed and I'd never seen a man wear cufflinks before. And I just, I just remember having this little thought as an 11 or 12 year old going, one day I'm going to have a job where I wear cufflinks. <laughs> I and, think we all had that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So all of my work shirts are, 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 are cufflinks. I don't have any work shirts that have got button, button cuffs because that's just the, my little James Bond thing. It's my little thing, you know, put my cufflinks yeah. on and I'm in the zone. And that's just one little thing, you know, with that, that, that you have many things that, that you, little triggers that you have that get you in the zone, that get you to walk into a room in the best possible way. And I agree with you completely. You don't want to walk into a room where people think you're an arrogant idiot and just check out and pick up their phone and start doing their emails. I'm trying, Martin. Oh. I'm really trying to not do that. The problem, <laughs> but the problem is, the problem is, if you've been doing martial arts or you've been doing, you've mm. been going to the gym a lot or you've been, like, I mean, I've been doing Tai Chi like 22 years. Well, I kind uh-huh. of, I can't help having this posture the way it is it's like it's like so if you put if you put a if you think about let me see what was that what was that um it's not a cartoon it was actually with the pink rolls royce thunderbirds right and if you think about the puppet yeah okay (laughs) no i'm perfectly serious you think you think about you think Mm -hmm. about the puppet there right and how those puppets reflect the human the human yeah and yep. in Tai Chi, we, we talk about having being suspended by your head top. So it's almost like you're being pulled up on a string by the middle of your head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, slightly to the, not exactly to the middle, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So how, so would you, would you advise walking in like that or slightly having your chin down so that you're not too arrogant or you know your chin up a little bit too much how would you advise people walk into the room and and, and strut their stuff uh, well, well interestingly enough that, that thing you talked about martial arts and i studied martial arts a lot when i was a teenager as well and the the idea of muscle memory that your body and you can very often tell people who have, who have been athletes or dancers or certainly military types you can just you can just tell the 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 muscle memory is there. Now, all of those disciplines do involve the body being in optimum position, which I think is interesting. And there's also a very interesting study that I, I looked at a while ago where there's a, there's a direct correlation between height and how much you get paid. <laughs> right? And there's a direct correlation. Uh, there's complete, you know, the I can't remember the figures now off the top of my head, but there's a, a survey done on average height of the U.S. male, and then the average height of people in boardrooms, and there was like a, you know, a couple of inches in a difference, and it was average height was over six foot, I think, in the boardroom, and there's a perception of height and power. Now, this has no bearing in terms of what height you are, but depending upon the way that you stand you can increase or decrease your height by a couple of inches. If you're really slumped, you, can, you, you really compress. You stand really up, up, up tall. And I, interestingly enough, I use the same analogy. I, I, a very similar one, not quite the, 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 the string, but I say, imagine there's a, a plumber's suction cup attached to the top of your head. And it's just <laughs> gently plugging you up straight. So you're, you're elongating your spine. You're becoming your full, full height therefore you're likely to be perceived as more powerful as more confident as you walk into the room and no matter what height we are none of us can afford to to slouch and it's about making the best of, of what you've got so standing up straight is certainly something that just projects that that correct image but not uh, of arrogance and or, or not of 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 breaking the relationship the potential of breaking the relationship so you soften that up with making direct eye contact with people smiling uh, shaking their hands if possible and or a piece of humility and some of the things that you they will say in, in your in your opening depending upon the audience and your objective and what they do or don't know about you right and also also about you know body language like you can be sitting at a desk and you've got body language 
yeah oh yeah as well you know yeah i mean you my 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 line on this is you're always being read yeah so what 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 do you what do you want to say but as soon as you said stand up straight i just i was like oh no i'm slouching over my screen <laughs> and i actually sat up straight in my chair because it's like we mm. pick up these bad habits just because we just forget i think and i think there is there is a conscious consciousness that we need to we need to put in place so that we actually are aware awareness is where it all begins right all of this stuff it's about awareness yeah. and then making some changes and you know if you do need to study it then you know first port of call check out amy cuddy and then you know find an expert like you martin <laughs> i think i might be a little bit cheaper to hire in a one-to-one -one i think you, i think you might be but you never know <laughs> so, so so who what sort of you've been doing this for a long long time right like how long have you been how long have you been involved with with this well, I've been involved in training and development for 17 years. I set up my own business back in 2002, teaching people a, a broad range of soft skills, sales, negotiation, presentation, leadership, influencing, conflict management. I've got a very broad expanse of all of those soft skills from my own industry background as a sales as a salesperson and as a leader of sales teams in the travel industry. Oh, wonderful. So, oh yes, yeah. I remember you worked at STA Travel, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. That was my... I, I I did a lot of backpacking in in yeah. my uh, late twenties. I went around the world. We did thirty three thousand air miles, and STA were, were were brilliant. I mean, that's they're the company that um, that I got my insurance through, and you know, every so often you pop into an STA office. What a fantastic experience going travelling. Yeah, no, that was, that was my travel and music were my, my first loves. And uh, I was lucky enough to spend the first six years of my career working for STA, started as a consultant and ended up as a area retail manager running a number of branches in central London. So it was, a, it was an amazing experience. I really, really did enjoy it. And it, and it gave me a lot of that uh, person centric uh, relationship building uh, experience that I then built upon. And then when I came into uh, training and development. I went on to various different roles after that, but that face-to-face -face customer interaction and, and leading uh, retail teams was a was a real starting point for for building what I do. And of course, when you're in a sales environment like that, you got a a very good litmus test yeah. of whether what you're doing is working working or not. And within 18 months of joining that company, I won our coveted uh, sales executive of the year award just as I had that natural connection with people built upon my skills mm. uh, ruthlessly stole uh, techniques from other people around me that I saw worked and I turned them into my own or modified them over, over time and it's I just build like any industry just build up your expertise build up your knowledge uh, fine-tune what other people do do well get quality feedback about what you're doing that you could do differently and just always be ruthlessly prepared to to improve and and to be able to get the success that comes from being the best in your field yeah, I, I i agree 100 percent with all of that and i i want to thank you so much for your time so uh, do people visit your website or hit you up on linkedin how do they get hold of you martin yeah the best way to find me is on on linkedin so there last time i checked there were 234 martin brooks's on on linkedin but if you type in martin brooks and then the word impact and Martin Brooks, impactologist, should pop up uh, right at the top of the search. Very list. cool. Well, I look forward look forward to learning more about all of this. It's it's very very interesting. Well, thanks very much for the time. It's been uh, I've really enjoyed having the having the chat, and we should uh, do it again some other point, <laughs> maybe over a pint or something. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe, and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show. Drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.